Thanks, Sarah Jane. Yes, and as you pray for people that are going to high school camp and middle school camp and VBS, pray for the leaders because students don't usually run out of stamina, but those that are like no longer 15 do. So pray for the leaders and the stamina that they will surely need. Um, And thank you guys for serving in that way, those of you that are going. So this morning, uh, we're going to be picking up Hebrews chapter 12. And I know all of you have been waiting around since last fall. When we were studying Hebrews, we made it to chapter 11. And I know you've been thinking, when are we going to finish Hebrews? Some of you are actually like, wait, there's more chapters in Hebrews? Yes, there are. There's actually two more. So we're, we're continuing putting an end cap on our series from the book of Hebrews, looking at the final two chapters. So today we're going to be in Hebrews 12, the first two verses. And I know you don't need this because I know you intimately remember every sermon you heard on the book of Hebrews. But hypothetically, if you needed a recap, cliff notes for Hebrews, here's what it is saying. Jesus is better. Pretty much. Pretty much that's it. The whole book of Hebrews is making the argument that what you now have in Christ is better than anything that you left behind, anything that you will ever get in the future. Jesus is greater than Moses, the hero of the faith. He's greater than angels. Jesus is a better sacrifice, the sacrifice for sins that had to be offered over and over and over. Jesus is better because once and for all, he was the final sacrifice for all of our sins. He's the better high priest, the better representative between God and man who understands our plight, but was without sin and perfectly represents us to the Father. So Jesus is better. And it was written to a church not unlike us, because they were people who were starting to feel the difficulties of life. Persecution, suffering, the screws were being turned on them a little bit. And they started asking the question, is it, is it really supposed to be this hard? Is it, is it worth it? Is it supposed to be like this? Have you been there? I've asked those questions. Many of you have too. So this morning, we're going to see some encouragement from God's word about how to endure the race that we're called to. So if you don't have your Bible with you or a smartphone with a Bible app, um, in your bulletin, the words are printed. Also on the screen behind me, they'll be there. But, but listen along as I read God's very word written for us from Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you that uh, you don't leave us without a roadmap in the race. You don't leave us alone. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us. And Lord, that your word, not my thoughts or ideas, but your word would bear fruit in our lives. Would you do that because you love us, because of Jesus, and we ask it in his name. Amen. So if, if you haven't realized this yet, if you've, if you've ever been for a jog, you've realized this fundamental essential truth of life. Running is hard. If you live in Florida, 
and you're like me and you always remember to go for a run at like 2.30 in the afternoon, running is terrible. (laughs) Running longer is more terrible. So people that run cross-country races or marathons or any kind of endurance athlete, those are crazy people and we should pray for them. But it's, it's difficult because if you were to do something like run a marathon, it will test you in every way because you can't just sign up for a marathon tomorrow and go run it without any preparation. You would quickly be exposed and you might actually die. But it tests your physical stamina. It, it tests your preparation, but it also tests your mental strength. I briefly ran cross country It did not last long because I'm much better at chasing or being chased in the immediate. Because when you're in a cross-country race, there's no one that's about to tackle you. It's simply your brain telling your legs not to stop moving, which is really difficult after about the third or fourth mile. But distance running, distance athletics, it, it is testing and it is trying and not for the faint of heart. Well, the Christian life in scripture is often compared to running an endurance race. And similarly, it is not always easy. Sometimes it is really difficult. Sometimes there are pains and struggles and strivings along the way that threaten to crush us. It's hard. And for some of us, that kind of comes as a surprise. And when we realize that the Christian life is actually sometimes a difficult endurance race, well, often we have one of two responses. And one is to kind of pause and say, well, wait, hold on. I didn't sign up for this. I really like that Jesus loves me and that God offers me peace and I have perfect relationship. That that stuff sounds good. The whole suffering bit, yeah, I want my, um, in the buffet of Christianity, I would like to pass on the suffering and the struggle and have just the good, happy, good feelings. And so some of us are sitting here and saying, you know, I, I didn't think it would cost this much. Is it, is it worth it? Is it worth the cost? But the question I have this morning is, how could it not cost us something? Because to follow Christ is to say, I am not the Lord of my life but you are. You are my savior. You are good. You love me, but I am saying, I will follow you. My allegiance is to you, not to myself, not to protecting my kingdom. And I will follow you wherever you call me. That is what it is to follow Christ, to be a follower of him. In a broken, sinful world, how could that not cost us something? Even as simple as if you tithe, it costs you money. You could spend that on nice, shiny junk. (laughs) I like to buy shiny stuff. It costs you something. If you served the Thursday night dinner and handed food to people, it cost you your time. The people that are teaching our children right now is costing them time and maybe some mental sanity. I don't know. It costs something. It might cost friendships. It might cost hard conversations. It might cost you not being able to advance because you're not willing to play by the rules of your workplace. Well, it's certainly going to cost you your pride. You can't be your own Lord and follow Jesus as Lord too. For some of us, we're not sure we want to pay the cost of being in the race and running. Yeah, uh, I don't know. The whole argument of Hebrews is because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, there is no other response 
than to follow Christ wherever he would take us. Because God has taken us who were dead enemies of him, has brought us to life, has entirely paid our debt, removing the weight and guilt and the shame of sin from us, has brought us into his family and said, you are my child. When we face that kind of astonishingly unflinching, unbreakable love, the only response is, yes, sign me up. I will follow you wherever you go because I know you go with me because I know you love me because I know Christ is better. And so if you are sitting and saying, I don't know, I would encourage you to say, get in the race. Yeah, it's hard. You are going to take some lumps along the way, but it's good. It is better. And we'll see a little bit more about that a little later. And then there are others of us that when we realize the difficulty of Christian life, man, we're, we try really hard. You know, we're like, man, I'm, I'm trying to be good. I'm trying to have my quiet times. I'm trying to do the things that God cares about but I feel like life is using me as its punching bag. I feel like, man, is it supposed to be this hard to have a conversation with my spouse? Are we supposed to fight this much? Am I supposed to be this sick all the time? Is it supposed to be this hard to find a job, to find a friend? And often we come dragging in and we're saying, I don't know if I can do it. It's just too hard. If I have to have one more doctor's appointment, If I have to bury one more person I love and carry, but I I don't think I can do it. God, this race is, it's not for me. It's too much. That is why we need this scripture this morning. Because if you will lean in with me, what we'll see is that we are offered encouragement along the way that we can endure because of three things. That if we wish to run this race well, we have to look to three things that ensure, that guarantee, that carry us home across the finish line. And they're simple things. The three things are that we have to look to those who have gone before. We have to cast off the things that are hindering us, that are slowing us down. And we have to set our focus, our gaze, our eyes upon Christ. So that's where we're going this morning, to look through those three things. The first thing we have to do is we have to look to those who have gone before. Now, you may have realized that, you may not have realized that. The first verse of chapter 12 talks about the great cloud of witnesses that we are surrounded by. That's talking about chapter 11, which is the Faith Hall of Fame. These are all these people who have endured, who have finished the race, who have followed God, who have trusted in him and are now home, who've made it across the finish line. Now, you may ask a very valid question of, how do a bunch of old dead people help encourage me with my life struggles today? It's a fair question. They do because they've run before us. They struggled. They toiled. They wrestled with, is God good? Can he be trusted? They have run the race before us and they made it across the finish. They, they finished. And so you can, you can almost imagine, you know, when any athlete does some great feat or accomplishment, there's always the reporter right there. Hey, so tell me how you did it. You know, and then the sprinter's like, well, I decided that I would run faster than the other competitors. And I thought to myself, I could lose this race, but instead I'd like to win. So I did that thing. You know, how did you manage to hit that grand slam? Well, I closed my eyes and I swung the bat and good things happened. It's a little comical, but we should be those people who want to hear. How did you do it? Like you faced hard things. I mean, the preceding scripture talks about some people were tortured. They refused to be let go because they cared about more things than just being tortured. Some were sawn in two. 
Yes, they faced hard things. So we want to stand with a microphone and say, how did you do it? And they would give us one simple answer. By faith. If you read the preceding chapter, you will see the words by faith, by faith, by faith, over and over again. And that is really good news for us this morning. Because they didn't finish the race because they were really good runners. They were really good religious people that did really good things, and so they made it home. Nope, not at all. The list of the previous chapter includes an adulterer and a murderer, uh, somebody who tried to peddle his wife off as his sister when he went to a new town because he thought maybe it would gain him more favor, and he didn't want to risk his own neck. Class, class move right there. Somebody who was so incredibly arrogant that he continued picking fights, but so dumb that he didn't realize his enemies were trying to trap him and ended up being caught having his eyes gouged out and then died when he collapsed a building on himself and his enemies. These were not like great runners. So that should encourage us this morning, those of us that feel like, man, we're not really good at this whole being a Christian thing. We're not great runners. The good news is they didn't finish because of perfection or self-reliance. The bad news is if we hope to finish this race, we have to give up on getting by on our own strength. If you're like me, I like control. I like to have things work the way I want to work them, and I want to earn my things, and I want to get credit, and that's not how this race works. You're not fast enough to finish. You're not strong enough. You don't have the endurance enough. Here's your pep talk. You don't have what it takes. But some of you don't believe that yet. You're just trying really hard to make God like you. Would you cut it out? Stop. The Father loves you because of Jesus, because he worked hard enough, because he ran a perfect race. So we have to let go of self-reliance if we are to run by faith. And to run by faith simply means those people that went before, they believed that God was not a liar. And that when he made promises, he was strong enough and good enough to keep them. And they clung on to those promises that he was who he said he was and he would do what he said he would do. No less so should it be true of us. Because they didn't even see Jesus. They looked dimly, hoping for the day when God would send a deliverer. We know his name, Jesus Christ, the deliverer who came as the perfect sacrifice for us. How much more should we trust in our promise-making and promise-keeping God? So to run by faith, we believe that he keeps his promises. We also ask for help. First off from him, but if you can't do it, as I so eloquently put, you can't do it, it's okay to ask God for help to say, I'm not strong enough. This is going to destroy me. It's okay to look to our other runners and say, right now I am so buried in my shame I feel so inadequate, so wrong that I can't believe God loves me. Will you please remind me of what is true? To run by faith, it's okay to ask for help. So we find encouragement from those who ran before, because we saw they weren't great runners, but they ran by faith. Same with us. We're not trusting in ourselves. Well, this is where the second tip comes in, that Sometimes the race is difficult, but sometimes it's more difficult because of our own doing. Sometimes it's more difficult because of our own choices. We make it harder. So the second running tip is that if we hope to endure, 
Yes, we look to those who have come before us, but we also learn to cast off anything that entangles us. We read that at the very beginning of our chapter that we have to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Or if you have the NIV, sin which so easily entangles. It's a vivid word picture. But we have to take off the things that are weighing us down. Now, if you've ever watched a distance race, they are taking only the essentials with them. You do not see someone at the start of the Boston Marathon with hiking boots, jeans, a parka, and a giant backpack on. Because, again, they would probably die. Right? They don't do that. They are only carrying the essentials. And I remember this far too vividly when I, when I briefly had a cross-country career in high school. As like a 16-year-old, my cross-country coach handed me my uniform and my immediate thought was, where's the bottom half of the shorts? Like there's, I mean, are we on a budget strain here? Can we not afford just like, give me, give me another inch, please. That helps you become comfortable with your own body a lot quicker. But the point is, you're not carrying extra baggage. You don't want the weight. The shoes are light. The kits are light. The shorts are sparse. You don't want extra weight. But so many of us are running this race carrying extra gear, carrying extra weight that slows us down, that entangles us. It's like trying to run a race with your shoelaces tied together. You'll move forward, not well, and not very comfortably. And the scripture calls us to cast it off. But the first step in casting off weight and sin is that we have to actually notice it's there. And this is where really most of us, if you're like me, we have failed to cultivate the habit of self-examination. Right? We don't actually look down to see that our shoes are together. We just keep going like, why is this so hard? Whoops. Take a look. And for if you're like me, because I have the entire world in my pocket, I never have to be bored. I can always be distracted by something. I can always turn on the radio in my car. There's always a TV show. There's always some Facebook post or Instagram or something in the world to distract me so that it's never quiet, so that I'm never bothered by my own feelings of guilt or shame, or struggle. And if we don't learn to turn down the noise, we're never going to actually be able to look at the things that are entangling us. So the first thing we have to do is make space for self-examination. And we can do that because we're not scared of God. Because we're not going to find something where he's going to flip out and like, oh, didn't see that coming. He, he sees it coming, I promise. So we have to pause and look within And then we see that there's two things that can hinder us. Now, the first is there's weight. He talks about weight and sin. Now, weight, essentially, you could think of is anything in your life that is competing with God for your affection, for your priorities, for your attention. Are there things that you are loving and pursuing more? And that can be a lot of different things. For some of us, we really want a life of comfort and leisure. So we're going to use our money in those ways. We're we're not going to take risks. We're not necessarily going to listen to some of the things that God says about the poor because those make us uncomfortable. For some of us, it's control. I want to call the shots in my own life. Well, God says, nope, I do. (laughs) There are many things that can weigh us down that maybe don't even have to be sin of really wanting to pursue success, pride, a lot of things. And then there's the sin 
that so easily entangles. The best analogy I can think of that is from Florida agriculture. Now, if you're from Florida, you may not know this. So I'll let you in on a secret. Your vegetation is weird. It is strange and abnormal, and sometimes it seems extraterrestrial, right? So your grass is angry. It is thick and sharp, and if you walk on bare feet, you may start bleeding. It's like sandpaper and razor blades, like had a baby and it became grass, and that's, it's not quite that bad. It's close, but if you go to like grass somewhere in a cooler climate, it's actually cool and soft, and you would want to lie down in it. You don't want to lie down in grass, mostly because there's probably a snake or a lizard, but But one of the most impressive things is the vines that grow in my yard, because this is a scientific fact. If you didn't know, a vine in Florida can actually grow the length of a football field in an hour. (laughs) You believe me, right? But it seems like that. I, I was trying to go into my backyard yesterday. I could not open the gate. I opened it a week before, but that was before vines had literally wrapped over the entire top and like latched the door shut gone around it, underneath it, I think around the side, through the neighbor's window, and then like back on the original bush. Ah, okay. That's what our sin does. If we let it sit and don't attend to it, don't apply the truth and the blood of Christ to it, it just starts wrapping around our hearts. And like any vine, it starts suffocating. And it starts numbing us to the grace and goodness and kindness and voice and presence of God. It is not inconsequential. For some of us here this morning, we don't think our sin is actually slowing us down. Eh, Yes, I've got some stuff, but it's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter. But I would beg you, if we stop minimizing If we stop comparing it to others, well, yeah, I got some stuff, but that guy, that guy's a real jerk. If we stop blame shifting, well, I wouldn't have got angry if they hadn't cut me off and said something stupid. The only reason I said all those creative, colorful words were because of their choices and what they did to me. If we're willing to stop that long enough, we realize that our sin was so serious that it cost God his very life and that we ought not treat it kindly or tolerantly. It is a a poison that hardens us slowly, but surely. It is not stronger than God's grace, but we ought to take it seriously. Now, some of us are in the opposite end of the spectrum of like, oh, I know I'm entangled. I know I'm so wrapped up in sin that I'm not sure I will ever escape. I don't think I can undo this mess of vines, this web that's around my heart, but also my shoe. And I feel like I'm going through life kind of like this, wrapped up in a pretzel because of my sin and my choices, and I'm not sure I can ever get free. The reminder, the encouragement, the good news to you this morning is how do you run your race? By faith. And your hope is not that you're really good at pulling apart the pieces. Your hope is that God is a really good gardener. Your hope is that God is more powerful and sufficient to untangle the sin in our heart if we will see it and bring it before him. So I've convinced you, right? You're like, okay, sin's a big deal. Well, now what? Well, we have to actually cast it aside. Well, how do we do that? As I was thinking through this and over the past couple of months, I've realized one uh, unalterable truth. I'm really bad at repenting. And that's what casting off is. It's repenting. And I'm not good at it because here's what I want to happen. 
I want God to sprinkle his like magic God dust of forgiveness and joy and take away any uncomfortable feelings like guilt and shame and just make me feel happy again because I did dumb things. I don't want him to do open heart surgery and actually carve out the things in my life that are killing me. I don't want it to be difficult. I don't want it to be painful. I want repentance to be quick and easy and make me feel better. Thankfully, God loves us a little bit too much for that. So along the way of realizing I'm really bad at repentance, I've learned a couple things, and I would just like to share them with you. This is fireside chat with Dave. This part of the sermon's free. But in looking at repentance, I learned a couple things. One, we have to own our own sin, which means I can't say my sin is somebody else's fault. Yeah, they may have been involved in it. I may have been sinned against, but I have to own the fact that I sinned, that I, I said things, I did things, I thought things that did not honor God. And I have to own it. I can't blame shift. I can't minimize. I can't hide. Pull it out and say, that's it. I did it. It is what it is. Owning our sin. When I do that, it often pushes me to shame, which is where the next thing I learned really comes in helpful, is when I repent, I have to remember the face and the posture of God towards me when I turn to him in repentance. Because that's what repentance is. It is turning away from sin and turning to the Lord. And I think a lot of times we think of God like this. <sighs> yes, I'll forgive you again, but really could you try a little harder next time? Or just with our parents, you know, arms crossed like our parents might've been of like, really, you're gonna come in at two o'clock again? Come on. Or just, I'm out. You are too much work for me. I think sometimes we don't want to repent because we're afraid of what God's face looks like. Well, the good news is because of Jesus, here is God's posture towards you when you repent. Open arms. It is like the father and the prodigal son. He is running out to meet you in love saying, my son, my daughter has come home. Welcome, come in. Let me heal you. Let me apply my love and my blood to your life and to your heart. It's not disappointment. It's not frustration. Christ took care of those things. It is the loving arms of a good father who welcomes you into his arms. So in repentance, we turn to loving arms. Also, one of the hardest things about repentance I've learned is having to ask the why. A lot of times we like to deal with our surface level behaviors. Okay, well, I should stop being so angry. Instead of asking the question, why am I so angry? Oh, it's because I think I'm actually in control. And when other people don't play along, it ticks me off because then it's a reminder that I'm not actually in control of my own world. And that makes me angry. So often we repent of the surface level thing and we don't ask, what is going on in my heart? Where is there something I'm believing that is wrong? Where is there a fear that is deep down that needs to be brought to the light? Asking the why question, why is that going on? Why does that keep happening? Because really what repentance is doing and asking the why question is is taking something that is a really fake substitute and seeing how what Christ offers us is so much better. Like take control. How well does it work to try to control your world? Maybe for a little bit, but it's like a kid trying to guard his sandcastle from the tide. Tide's gonna win. But what if instead when we repent, when we see that what I really want is control, that we actually turn to God and realize, wow, there's so much more freedom if I realize that God is in complete control and he's good. 
to where I don't have to manage and spin all these plates to make sure this stays okay, but I can actually let go and trust. So asking the why question exposes our heart and it actually lets us see how Christ offers us something better than what we're protecting, we're running from, or we're hiding in. So learning to ask the why. And the final thing is to do it in community. Sin is really good at isolating us and it's really good at making us hide, right? I mean, hypothetically, because I know on Sunday morning, none of you have problems because we say, hey, how are you? And you say, fine, I'm so great. My entire life is falling apart here. Thank you so much for asking. We don't have problems at Orangewood on Sunday morning, right? Everything smiles and it's good and it's happy, though I've been in pain for six years, right? Now everything's good. But sin and pain, they isolate us. They cause us to hide. They cause us to defend. And repentance is bringing that to the light. And we need other people to walk in it with us. We need other people to help, to remind us of what is true, to move out of hiding, to move into the light. And that's scary unless God is actually who he says he is and can actually keep his promises. It's a couple thoughts on repentance. So we have to look at those who have come before. We have to cast off our entanglements. And finally, and most importantly, we have to fix our eyes, our focus, our gaze on Christ. Now, there, there are many great things about being a parent. Um, one of them is discovering how incredibly fast your child is when they lock on something that they want. And so I've discovered this with Knox. When he sees something he wants and I turn away for half a second, Somehow he's magically been able to go like 60 yards in half a second, faster than an Olympic sprinter, usually after something like a power cord that I don't want him to have or, you know, the dog's water dish or whatever it happens to be. But when he sets his eyes on something, boom, he is off like a shot and he gets there with um, unimaginable speed, impossible speed. It, it should not be possible. Um, but he sets his eyes man, and he goes It's the same when we run our race. If we want to run well, we have got to set our eyes on Christ. Whether things are going great and you feel like life is like a downhill trot and the wind is in your back, or you feel like my leg is going to fall off if I have to run another mile, or I'm about to collapse and throw up on the side because it's too hard. In the same place, we need that because when we look to Christ, we see a couple great things. One is that we see the example of someone who has already run the race before us. We see that Christ endured a level of suffering, of torture, of trial, and ultimately of of murder that no one has ever gone through before and that we never will have to suffer through because he went through it for us. And all along the way, at no point did he give up, quit, or drop out of the race. I would have been tempted to had I been God because he knows your heart. He knows how many times you're gonna turn away, how many times you're gonna take his grace for granted. But at no point did he let up. And for you and for me, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And when it says despising its shame, what it means is he considered the shame of being tortured and hung on a cross, probably naked, nothing compared to the joy of honoring his father and bringing his brothers and sisters home. He endured never giving up for you and for me the worst possible scenarios imaginable. 
how much should that quicken our hearts to keep going, to know that he did not let up to make us children of God keep running, keep going as we look to him and how much he loves us. And know that when you struggle, when you suffer, you are following in the footsteps of your savior. That is not a bad place to be. Scripture even talks about we have fellowship with him. He is a great high priest who knows what it is like to struggle and suffer and offers us help and grace in our time of need. So we see his example, but we also see some really good news. He is the guarantee that we will finish the race. Again, you're not going to be a great runner. He is the guarantee that you will endure, that you will make it, that you will cross the finish line. Because it says in here that Christ, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, right? Which means you did not enter yourself into this race Essentially, you were lying dead on the side of the road and Christ brought you to life and said, come on, come with me, follow me this way. You didn't enter yourself in the race and you will not be the one that gets you home. He is both the author and the perfecter, the one who will complete the work that he has started in your life. And because he won the victory, because he is already seated at the right hand of the throne of God, there is nothing in this life that you will face suffering sin, evil of others, there is nothing that you will face that is in any way stronger than your Lord. So the race will probably be hard and you will probably think there are things that will destroy you, but they cannot destroy him. He has already defeated them. He has already won the victory and he has promised he will get you home. Hebrews 10 says that he is the one who by his sacrifice has forever made perfect those who are being sanctified. If Jeff ever gets a tattoo, it's probably going to be that verse. We're not going to talk more about that, but that's it. That's a free one for you. He is the one who has by his sacrifice forever already made you perfect. Those that he has guaranteed, he will finish the job. And that when you cross the finish line, you will see him face to face and you will be like him in perfect fellowship without the pain, without the sin, without the struggle, enjoying how you were created to live. That is the promise of the race. That is why we fix our eyes on Christ and nothing else, because nothing can give us that hope, that assurance, and that strength as we run. One of the best movies about running you will ever see is Chariots of Fire. It's probably one of Christie's heroes is Eric Little. And there's a great line in the movie where he says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I think there was about half of a time when running that I ever felt pleasure. Most of the time I felt many other things. Pleasure was not one of them. But because we know that it's really our trust in God that will get us home, because we know it's his goodness to keep his promises, we can run this life with freedom, with pain, but with freedom knowing he is going to get us home and that we can feel his pleasure as we run because we're clinging to his promises. Brothers and sisters, keep running. Keep relying only on him and not on yourself. Keep looking into your heart and casting aside the things that are entangling you and slowing you down and look deeply at your Savior who ran ahead of you and won the race 
who runs next to you whispering encouragement in your ear, and who runs behind you pushing you in the back, making sure that you will make it home and waits for you at the finish line with open arms saying, come enjoy my victory. So where are you in the race this morning? Some of you are not in the race yet. You're still watching. You're not sure. There is an offer of a loving Savior to make you new. Do not reject it. And if you're curious about that, come talk to one of us. We would happily tell you more. And some of you are running the race, but you're running it for your own self. You're running it for your glory, for your reputation, for your sense of well-being and pride. And I would say, stop. That's not strong enough to get you through the hurts and the trials of your life. And some of you are not sure that you could even crawl another inch. Let me encourage you this morning and say, the good news is you don't have to have enough strength because he is enough and he has already won the race on your behalf. Trust in him, look to him and keep going. Please pray with me this morning. God, so often we put our hope in ourself. Would you remind us that you are a lot stronger, a lot kinder, and a lot better than we are? For those of us that are stuck in our pride and our self-reliance, would you humbly break us? For those of us that are scared and tired, would you strengthen our weak legs Make straight our paths. Please do not let us settle for trusting in anything other than you. Thank you that you are so good, that you keep your promises, that you have already won our victory, that everything we have is a gift from you. Even this morning, as our tithes and our offerings are collected, we're giving back things that you have given us. And we ask that you would use them to strengthen us, use them to advance your kingdom, to, to enter more runners in the race, to strengthen those who are weary. Use them to bring your goodness into this world. We love you, we need you, and we ask for all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.